Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here as always with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I'm going to have you lead us today through a tour of two institutions that you and I have talked about a lot on this program before, uh, two institutions that you regard as undergoing a kind of rot in a way that's injurious for the wider society, uh, higher education and the media. And in a recent piece that you wrote on this, you start off by identifying two common traits that you say they share, ignorance and arrogance. Explain what you mean by that. Well, the university says it's going to turn out a well-balanced and educated student after four, supposedly four years. Now the average, I think, is five and a half with a bachelor's degree. And they charge the student and American society through subsidies a lot of money. And because people who are educated are confident and they're young and that they tend to be somewhat overconfident, what we're seeing is that they they did not fulfill that mission. The proliferation of studies courses or the watering down of the curriculum or the laxity in grading, whatever the particular exegesis is, we're graduating people who don't know what they used to know knew 30 years ago. And I mean, they don't know basic facts. They don't have an inductive method of thinking or arguing. And yet they are highly politicized and highly judgmental. The same thing is true of the media. We have these people who give us lectures all the time about climate of hate, war on women, uh, white supremacy, uh, all of these supposed threats. Now the latest one is, of course, Vladimir Putin. And uh, then you look at, okay, well, are these based empirically on facts? And they're usually not. And then we ask, that, well, not before you lecture us, are you doing your job? And then we start to look at things and we think, wow, Dan rather imploded because he said fake but accurate in reference to that 2004 memo that he tried to promulgate as, as genuine when he knew it wasn't. CNN um, had recent act, uh, an, a reporter off mic kind of joking about Donald Trump's plane crashing. Brian Williams made up. He's a fabulous NBC anchor, made up all of this stuff. So I guess what I'm saying is that uh, they don't do what they're supposed to do very well, and they're very proud about not doing it very well. <laughs> I, I could go through it all, but they're they're quite arrogant, and nobody trusts them anymore. And Susan Rice gets on all these supposed prestigious talk shows, and then what does she do? She promulgates a lie that Benghazi was caused by a, a spontaneous riot rather than a al-Qaeda hit operation because it serves the re-election narrative and she's not questioned on it and then that's promulgated. And then I, I want to be a little blunt here. When I turn on the TV and I see these talking heads in the mainstream media, I see Fareed Zakaria and I say the person has been admitting to plagiarism. He's plagiarized. And I see Doris Kearns good one, another talking head. I think, wait a minute, she plagiarized. And then I see uh, Maureen Dowd on occasion. I think, wow, she plagiarized. And what I'm getting at is that, and then I see Brian Williams. I said, wow, he made up all these things that weren't true. And there doesn't seem to be very many consequences. They get, they get, you know, 
slapped around a couple of times. They go from one channel to another. They're on forced vacation, but they never really pay a price. And yet I know at the Hoover Institution, if any of the 20-something books I wrote, if anybody had said that you have plagiarized, I'd be done. I'd be fired. And I probably should be. So I take that very serious that when I do a book like I'm doing now, I try to check the sources. I try to make sure that I haven't had anybody write anything for me. I don't try to steal things. And yet this media works on a, a very strange set of criteria that they're sort of elites in New York and Washington, and they're not subject to the ramifications of their own ideas. I want to talk about the politics of this a little bit because in this piece, you talk about the members of both groups, both largely liberal, and how they've reacted to the results of the, the election this year. And you say that it's been by embracing – I'm quoting you here – anything other than the truth that a now municipal Democratic Party is run by apartheid coastal elites and fueled by identity politics and that journalists and professors cannot keep society's trust. Close quote. So I'm curious how you think the causation runs there, Victor. Have Democrats been losing their appeal with the sort of blue-collar middle America voter because their fellow travelers in the media and the academy have been marginalizing them? Or have those groups been marginalizing them because they've seemed increasingly irrelevant to the Democratic Party? Well, a little bit of both. But the Democratic Party is basically Seattle to San Diego and Maine to Richmond, Virginia, about 50 miles wide, and then it's got a little cluster around the Great Lakes. And that 15% of the nation's geography is about 50% uh, of the electoral voting public. And they thought that because um, of the changing demography in the United States with increased Latinos, blacks, Asians, that everybody forever would always identify with their skin color, their religion, their sexual orientation, their gender, and that they would pander to that and offer them sort of a narrative that we're, we're going to grow government and we're going to give your group particular services because those people, i.e., the white working class, did it. And the white working class, in their view, did not have the romance of the poor, nor had the sophisticated elite culture of the wealthy. Now, that sort of worked with Obama, they thought. But the problem was is that it worked with Obama for two reasons, that he was, A, a, a new type of charismatic African-American first black president, and that had a sort of a value to people that transcended uh, politics. People wanted to vote for the first black person. And then second, uh there were Republican candidates that came off almost stereotypically wealthy, white, aristocratic, like John McCain or Mitt Romney. So the 2016 comes along, and we have a 68-year-old white woman, Hillary Clinton, and we're respecting her to get the same residence with minority voters as Obama had, and it didn't happen. That was not transferable. And yet – the downside was transferable, that although Obama had lost a lot of the working classes, but not to the extent of Hillary, and he had made them up in these key swing states in cities like Milwaukee and Pittsburgh and, you know, Columbus, etc. But Trump comes along, and he's not – he's a multimillionaire, of course, billionaire, but he comes off as very different. So he's a populist at a time uh, when Hillary has alienated these uh, working class groups, and yet – 
she's not going to get the upside from Obama getting minority out. And now the Democrats are in the worst situation since 1920. They've lost the governorship, legislature, Senate, House, presidency, probably the Supreme Court. And I don't see how they quite get back up to 51 or 52 percent again in these uh, in the electoral college states to win enough unless they start appealing toward working class people. And by that, I mean, regardless of race, they're going to have to say you people are what we're after. And we want you. We don't think race is important, but they're so wedded to the idea of minority and careerism that I don't think they can do it. You see that with the Democratic National Convention, Keith Ellison. He has no uh, he has no re- be- business being even considered for the head of the Democratic Party. He's just a House of Representative guy, very undistinguished. Uh, he was a member of the Nation of Islam. He wrote some lunatic things about dividing parts of the southern states off and giving them to black people on basis of race, segregation. He's been virulently, I think, anti-Semitic, and yet – they would even consider him after this blowout because of his uh, religion and his race. It's just crazy. So I don't see the, how they're going to reform until they get beat one more time, and they probably will in 2018. So let me take you back to these sort of twin pillars of the media and, and higher education for a moment. For conservatives, there's always a tension with these kinds of institutions as to whether you attempt to reform them from within or kind of counter-program them. So in the in the media, it seems like it's gone more in the latter direction. You've got a conservative newspaper like the Wall Street Journal that goes head-to-head with the New York Times. You've got a conservative cable news network like Fox that responds to MSNBC or CNN. You've got conservative websites. What about higher ed? Should conservatives be trying to reduce the bias in existing institutions or should they be creating new ones of their own? Is, is the solution there to sort of build more Hillsdales? I think it is. It's both. I think I don't understand why the great conservative fortunes, let's say the Koch brothers or something, they would not fund a major university with a graduate program that was conservative in nature. Part, maybe the reason is they know that every university or foundation ultimately, I think Robert Conquest said that, they inevitably become left wing as money is unaccounted for and plentiful. Then left wing people want to sort of grow it. But I think one of the better ways of addressing this would be to apply the rules of society to the universities. So I would say you can have your big billion-dollar endowments, but say after $5 billion, they're no longer uh, subject to tax-deductible contributions. Or if they are subject to tax, you have to share them with uh, lesser universities. I would get rid of the teaching credential. Boy, that would be a big change because if you could tell students – Stay one year and get a master's in history or biology or English and then go out and teach in the primary high schools. You would disenfranchise the entire education uh, industry, which is really the the engine that drives us race, class, gender, isms, and ologies. That would be a wonderful thing to do as well. And then the student debt, it's $1 trillion that's really change, making these students embittered. They delay marriage. They delay, they delay house purchases. They can't get jobs. And I would really make the universities contribute a large part of their budgets because they really told these young people, take these Byzantine loan schemes out and get a BA and you'll be so much better off. And they never really apprised them of how much they were going to charge them an interest and when. And I think if you would start to talk about 
nuts and bolts rather than ideology would be better. Universities are sort of a con. Here at Stanford, I get a, you know, a note that says, due to the traumatic uh, election, if you want to come to one of our counselors, as if you know, I'm a two-year-old in a fetal position. <laughs> but they never say to the students, you just graduated and you have a quarter million dollars in loans. If you want to come and talk to us about this traumatic experience, we're, we're going to help you. They don't because suddenly you, when you have to pay Stanford back money or any university back money, you're considered an adult. You're sort of like a Marine on the beaches at Okinawa. You're a full-fledged <laughs> adult. But over uh, anything that doesn't cost them any money, then you're a little kid that needs milk and cookies. So let me close then, that if that's the reform agenda for higher ed. In, in your recent writing on this, you also talked about some suggestions for how you'd like the media to change. And here you really focus on Donald Trump and how much you can change through the power of the presidency. So why don't you describe for us the ways you'd like to see Trump sort of break with recent tradition in terms of how he deals with the media? Well, I think he's doing a really good job because they're completely outraged. And so I think a Trump press conference, you're not going to see Washington Post, New York Times, NPR, or ABC, whoever. They're not going to be up there in the front row preening. He's going to have bloggers. He's going to have uh, online magazine people. And I think that's good. And I think he's going to communicate over the heads of people. And by that, I mean, with he's already doing it with Twitter and you can cross examine Twitter. The media does. You, he's doing it with videos, sort of like a Roosevelt's fireside chats. It's fireside Twitters and people can, you know, assess the validity of it in an open and free society. But he doesn't have to play by their rules. And remember that when Obama came along in general, he sort of snubbed the press, didn't have periodic press conferences. And then when Hillary ran, she had almost no press conferences and no cross-examinations and everybody accepted, well, maybe that's just the new way. And then Trump comes along and all of a sudden the press says, you've got to have weekly press conferences. You've got to let us cross-examine you. He doesn't. And I would be, I mean, there are a lot of symbolic things you can do. I wouldn't ever go to the White House Correspondents Association press dinner. You know, he would just say, this isn't, this isn't late night TV. I'm not going to do it. Sorry, it's over with. And I think he can do a lot of symbolic things to teach these elite media that they got the election wrong. They got the explanation of the election wrong. They were biased. We know from WikiLeaks they were weighing in with the old, with the Clinton campaign to have their stories approved. They were like little dachshunds that were rolling over and asking for you know cookies for their tricks when they weighed in with Podesta. And that's not acceptable. They were leaking debate questions, so they don't have any reputation anymore. And I don't think, and at least in the way they did, and we need a free press, but how that cross-examination of truth uh, truth and veracity will affect Trump, I think we're going to have to find a new way to do it. I think you can out-Twitter him or get into a Twitter debate with him or uh, – challenge the veracity of his of his uh, videos and he's talking all the time to people but i don't really think that he needs to um, have a traditional white house press conference and invite everybody in and then get that 40 minutes of venom that's coming in a way that obama never did and never happened to obama he had press conferences but they never were very frequent and they were never other than what's your favorite color and you know, what do you think of the weather in Spain and how is Michelle feeling today and what puppy did you buy? And the same thing uh, with Hillary. It's 
you know, she, she walked out from her private cabin and her airliner on the campaign trail and sort of talked to reporters. And that was it for 30 seconds. Meanwhile, I think Trump met with the media 400 times. And every time he did, they had a new gaffe. Or, I don't think he needs to play that game anymore. And that will shape up the media in a great deal. It's changing as we we know that, you know, when you everybody in the right said that Drudge and Limbaugh and Breitbart and all these things were an echo chamber that had. But they were never really an echo chamber. They were a, a wild, undisciplined response to the bias that was sort of the inherent in the networks. It's just a question if you like your bias or in your crudity sautéed or cooked and are raw. And <laughs> our right version is kind of raw and more honest, and the, the left version is sautéed and dr- gussied up. But it's still uh, – it's not it's – not, anything other than opinion journalism. All right. Thanks, as always, to our audience for listening to The Classicist. Remember to stop by hoover.org, where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon for the next episode. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.